Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer so? today, didn't you? You tried. How to do the dead come back, mother? What's the secret? Richard Henry Malden, between sunset and moonrise. During the early part of last year, it fell to me to act as executor for an old friend. We hadn't seen much of each other of late, as he had been living in the west of England, and my own time had been fully occupied elsewhere. The time of our intimacy had been when he was vicar of a large parish not far from Cambridge. I will call it Yaxham, though that is not its name. The place had seemed to suit him thoroughly. He had been on the best of terms with his parishioners and with a few gentry of the neighbourhood. The church demanded a custodian of antiquarian knowledge and artistic perception, and in these respects, too, my friend was particularly well qualified for his position. But a sudden nervous breakdown had compelled him to resign. The cause of it had always been a mystery to his friends, for he was barely middle-aged when it took place, and had been a man of robust health. His parish was neither particularly laborious nor harassing, and, as far as was known, he had no special private anxieties of any kind. But the collapse came with startling suddenness, and was so severe that for a time his reason seemed to be in danger. Two years of rest and travel enabled him to lead a normal life again, but he was never the man he had been. He never revisited his old parish or any of his friends in the county, and seemed to be ill at ease if conversation turned upon the part of England in which it lay. It was perhaps not unnatural that he should dislike the place which had cost him so much, but his friends couldn't but regard as childish the length to which he carried his aversion. He had had a distinguished career at the university, and had kept up his intellectual interests in later life, but except for an occasional success d'estime in a learned periodical, he had published nothing. I was not without hope of finding something completed among his papers which would secure for him a permanent place in the world of learning, but in this I was disappointed. His literary remains were copious and a striking testimony to the vigour and range of his intellect, but they were very fragmentary. There was nothing which could be made fit for publication, except one document which I should have preferred to suppress, but he had left particular instructions in his will that it was to be published when he had been dead for a year. Accordingly, I subjoin it exactly as it left his hand. It was dated two years after he had left Yaxham, and nearly five before his death. For reasons which will be apparent to the reader, I make no comment of any kind upon it. The solicitude which my friends have displayed during my illness has placed me under obligations which I cannot hope to repay, but I feel that I owe it to them to explain the real cause of my breakdown. I have never spoken of it to anyone, for, had I done so, it would have been impossible to avoid questions which I should not wish to be able to answer. Though I have only just reached middle age, I am sure that I have not many more years to live, and I am therefore confident that most of my friends will survive me and be able to hear my explanation after my death. Nothing but a lively sense of what I owe to them could have enabled me to undergo the pain of recalling the experience which I am now about to set down. Yaxham lies, as they will remember, upon the extreme edge of the Fen district. In shape, it is a long oval, with a main line of railway cutting one end. The church and vicarage were close to the station, and round them lay a village containing nearly five-sixths of the entire population of the parish. On the other side of the line, the Fen proper began, and stretched for many miles. 
Though it is now fertile corn land, much of it had been permanently underwater within living memory, and would soon revert to its original condition if it were not for the pumping stations. In spite of these, it is not unusual to see several hundred acres flooded in winter. My own parish ran for nearly six miles, and I had therefore several scattered farms and cottages so far from the village that a visit to one of them took up the whole of a long afternoon. Most of them were not on any road and could only be reached by means of droves. For the benefit of those who are not acquainted with the fen, I may explain that a drove is a very imperfect sketch of the idea of a road. It is bounded by hedges or dikes so that the traveller cannot actually lose his way, but it offers no further assistance to his progress. The middle is simply a grass track, and as cattle have to be driven along it, the mud is sometimes literally knee-deep in winter. In summer, the light peaty soil rises in clouds of sable dust. In fact, I seldom went down one without recalling Hesiod's unpatriotic description of his native village in Boeotia, bad in winter, intolerable in summer, good at no time. At the far end of one of these lay a straggling group of half a dozen cottages, of which the most remote was inhabited by an old woman whom I will call Mrs. Vrees. In some ways, she was the most interesting of all my parishioners, and she was certainly the most perplexing. She was not a native, but had come to live there some twenty years before, and it was hard to see what had tempted a stranger to so unattractive a spot. It was the last house in the parish, her nearest neighbour was a quarter of a mile away, and she was fully three miles from a hard road or a shop. The house itself was not at all a good one. It had been unoccupied, I was told, for some years before she came to it, and she had found it in a semi-ruinous condition. Yet, she had not been driven to seek a very cheap dwelling by poverty, as she had a good supply of furniture of very good quality, and apparently as much money as she required. She never gave the slightest hint as to where she'd come from, or what her previous history had been. As far as was known, she never wrote or received any letters. She must have been between fifty and sixty when she came. Her appearance was striking as she was tall and thin, with an aquiline nose and a pair of very brilliant dark eyes, and a quantity of hair, snow-white by the time I knew her. At one time she must have been handsome, but she had grown rather forbidding, and I used to think that a couple of centuries before she might have had some difficulty in proving that she was not a witch. Though her neighbours not unnaturally fought rather shy of her, a conversation showed that she was a clever woman who had at some time received a good deal of education and lived in cultivated surroundings. I used to think that she must have been an upper servant, most probably a lady's maid in a good house, and despite the ring on her finger, suspected that Mrs. was brevet rank. On New Year's Eve, I thought it my duty to visit her. I hadn't seen her for some months, and a few days of frost had made the drove more passable than it had been for several weeks. But, in spite of her interesting personality, I always found that it required a considerable moral effort to call at her cottage. She was always civil, and expressed herself pleased to see me, but I could never get rid of the idea that she regarded civility to me in the light of an insurance which might be claimed elsewhere. I always told myself that such thoughts were unfounded and unworthy, but I could never repress them altogether, and whenever I left her cottage it was with a strong feeling that I had no desire to see her again. I used, however, to say to myself that that was really due to personal pique, because I could never discover that she had any religion, nor could I instil any in her, and that the fault was therefore more mine than hers. 
On this particular afternoon, the prospect of seeing her seemed more than usually distasteful, and my disinclination increased curiously as I made my way along the drove. So strong did it become that if any reasonable excuse for turning back had presented itself, I'm afraid I should have seized it. However, none did, so I held on, comforting myself with the thought that I should begin the new year with a comfortable sense of having discharged the most unpleasant of my regular duties in a conscientious fashion. When I reached the cottage, I was a little surprised at having to knock three times and by hearing the sound of bolts cautiously drawn back. Presently the door opened and Mrs. Vries peered out. As soon as she saw who it was, she made me very welcome as usual, but it was impossible not to feel that she had been more or less expecting some other visitor whom she was not anxious to see. However, she volunteered no statement, and I thought it better to pretend to have noticed nothing unusual. On a table in the middle of the room lay a large book which she had obviously been reading. I was surprised to see that it was a Bible, and that it lay open at the book of Tobit, Seeing that I'd noticed it, Mrs. Reese told me, with a little hesitation, I thought, that she had been reading the story of Sarah and the fiend Asmodeus. Then, the ice once broken, she plied me almost fiercely with questions. To what cause did I attribute Sarah's obsession in the first instance? Did the efficacy of Tobias's remedy depend upon the fact that it had been prescribed by an angel, and much more to the same effect? Naturally, my answers were rather vague and her good manners couldn't conceal her disappointment. She sat silent for a minute or two while I looked at her, not, I must confess, without some alarm, for her manner had been very strange, and then said abruptly, Well, will you have a cup of tea with me? I assented gladly, for it was nearly half past four, and it would take me nearly an hour and a half to get home. She took some time over the preparations, and during the meal talked with even more fluency than usual. I couldn't help thinking— that she was trying to make it last as long as possible. Finally, at about half-past five, I got up and said that I must go, as I had a good many odds and ends awaiting me at home. I held out my hand, and as she took it, said, You must let me wish you a very happy new year. She stared at me for a moment, and then broke into a harsh laugh, and said, If wishes were horses, beggars might ride. Still, I thank you for your good will. Goodbye. About thirty yards from my house, there was an elbow in the drove. When I reached it, I looked back and saw that she was still standing in a doorway, with her figure sharply silhouetted against the red glow of the kitchen fire. For one instant, the play of shadow made it look as if there were another, taller figure behind her, but the illusion passed directly. I waved my hand to her and turned the corner. It was a fine, still, starlit night. I reflected that the moon would be up before I reached home, and my walk would not be unpleasant. I had naturally been rather puzzled by Mrs. Reese's behaviour, and decided that I must see her again before long, to ascertain whether, as seemed possible, her mind were giving way. When I had passed the other cottages of the group, I noticed that the stars were disappearing, and a thick white mist was rolling up. This didn't trouble me. The drove now ran straight until it joined the high road, and there was no turn into it on either side. I had therefore no chance of losing my way, and anyone who lives in the fens is accustomed to fogs. It soon grew very thick, and I was conscious of the slightly creepy feeling which a thick fog very commonly inspires. I had been thinking of a variety of things in somewhat desolatory fashion, when suddenly, almost as if it had been whispered into my ear, a passage from the Book of Wisdom came into my mind and refused to be dislodged. My nerves were good then, and I had often walked up a lonely drove in a fog before, but still, Just at that moment, 
I should have preferred to have recalled almost anything else. But this was the extract with which my memory was pleased to present me. For neither did the dark recesses that held them guard them from fears, but sounds rushing down rang around them, and phantoms appeared, cheerless with unsmiling faces, and no force of fire prevailed to give them light. Neither were the brightest flames of the stars strong enough to illumine that gloomy night. And in terror they deemed the things which they saw to be worse than the sight on which they could not gaze, and they lay helpless, made the sport of magic art. Wisdom chapter 7 verses 4 to 6 Suddenly I heard a loud snort, as of a beast, apparently at my elbow. Naturally I jumped and stood still for a moment to avoid blundering into a stray cow, but there was nothing there. The next moment I heard what sounded exactly like a low chuckle. This was more disconcerting, but common sense soon came to my aid. I told myself that the cow must have been on the other side of the hedge, and not really so close as it had seemed to be. What I had taken for a chuckle must have been the squelching of her feet in a soft place, but I must confess that I didn't find this explanation as convincing as I could have wished. I plodded on, but soon began to feel unaccountably tired. I say unaccountably because I was a good walker and often covered much more ground than I had done that day. I slackened my pace, but as I was not out of breath, that did not relieve me. I felt as if I were wading through water up to my middle or through very deep, soft snow, and at last was fairly compelled to stop. By this time I was thoroughly uneasy, wondering what could be the matter with me. But as I had still nearly two miles to go, there was nothing for it but to push on as best I might. When I started again I saw that the fog seemed to be beginning to clear, though I could not feel a breath of air but instead of thinning in the ordinary way it merely rolled back a little on either hand, producing an effect which I had never seen before. Along the sides of the drove lay two solid banks of white, with a narrow passage clear between them. This passage seemed to stretch for an interminable distance, and at the far end I perceived a number of figures. I say advisedly perceived rather than saw, for I do not know whether I saw them in the ordinary sense of the word or not. That is to say, I did not know then, and have never been able to determine since, whether it was still dark. I only know that my power of vision seemed to be independent of light or darkness. I perceived the figures as one sees the creatures of a dream, or the mental pictures which sometimes come when one is neither quite asleep nor awake. They were advancing rapidly in orderly fashion, almost like a body of troops. The scene recalled very vividly a picture of the Israelites marching across the Red Sea between two perpendicular walls of water in a set of Bible pictures which I had had as a child. I suppose that I had not thought of that picture for more than thirty years, but now it leapt into my mind, and I found myself saying aloud, Yes, of course, it must have been exactly like that. How glad I am to have seen it. I suppose it was the interest of making the comparison that kept me from feeling the surprise which would have otherwise been occasioned by meeting a large number of people marching down a lonely drove after dark on a raw December evening. At first, I should have said there were thirty or forty in the party, but when they had drawn a little nearer, they seemed to me not more than ten or a dozen strong. A moment later I saw to my surprise that they were reduced to five or six. The advancing figures seemed to be melting into one another, something after the fashion of dissolving views. Their speed and stature increased as their numbers diminished, 
suggesting that the survivors had in some horrible fashion absorbed the personality of their companions. Now there appeared to be only three, then one solitary figure of gigantic stature rushing down drove towards me at a fearful pace, without a sound. As he came, the mist closed behind him, so that his dark figure was thrown up against a solid background of white, much as mountain climbers are said sometimes to see their own shadows upon a bank of cloud. On and on he came, until at last he towered above me, and I saw his face. It has come to me once or twice since in troubled dreams, and may come again, but I am thankful that I have never had any clear picture of it in my waking moments. If I had, I should be afraid for my reason. I know that the impression which it produced upon me was that of intense malignity long baffled, and now at last within reach of its desire. I believe I screamed aloud. Then, after a pause, which seemed to last for hours, he broke over me like a wave. There was a rushing and a streaming all round me, and I struck out with my hands as if I was swimming. The sensation was pressure and suffocation, but in this case, coupled with the most intense physical loathing. The only comparison which I can suggest is that I felt as a man might feel if he were buried under a heap of worms or toads. Suddenly I seemed to be clear and fell forward on my face. I'm not sure whether I fainted or not, but I must have lain there for some minutes. When I picked myself up, I felt a light breeze upon my forehead and the mist was clearing away as quickly as it had come. I saw the rim of the moon above the horizon, and my mysterious fatigue had disappeared. I hurried forward as quickly as I could without venturing to look behind me. I only wanted to get out of that abominable drove onto the high road, where there were lights and other human beings, for I knew that what I had seen was a creature of darkness and waste places, and that among my fellows I should be safe. When I reached home, my housekeeper looked at me oddly. Of course, my clothes were muddy and disarranged, but I suspect that there was something else unusual in my appearance. I merely said that I had had a fall coming up a drove in the dark and wasn't feeling particularly well. I avoided the looking-glass when I went into my room to change. Coming downstairs, I heard through the open kitchen door some scraps of conversation, or rather of a monologue delivered by my housekeeper, to the effect that no one ought to be about the droves after dark as much as I was, and it was providence that things were no worse. Her own mother's uncle had, it appeared, been down just such another drove on just such another night, forty-two years ago come next Christmas Eve. They brought him home on a barrow with both his eyes drawn down, and every drop of blood in his body turned. But he would never speak of what he see, and wild cats couldn't have scratched it out of him. An inaudible remark from one of the maids was met with a long sniff, and the statement, Girls seem to think they know everything nowadays. I spent the next day in bed, as besides the shock which I had received, I had caught a bad cold. When I got up on the second, I was not surprised to hear that Mrs. Vries had been found dead on the previous afternoon. I had hardly finished breakfast when I was told that the policeman, whose name was Winter, would be glad to see me. It appeared that on New Year's morning a half-witted boy of seventeen, who lived at one of the other cottages down the drove, had come to him and said that Mrs. Vries was dead, and that he must come and enter her house. He declined to explain how he had come by the information, so at first Mr. Winter contented himself with pointing out that it was the first of January, not of April. But the boy was so insistent that finally he went. When repeated knockings at Mrs. Vries's cottage produced no result, he had felt justified in forcing the back door. 
She was sitting in a large wooden armchair, quite dead. She was leaning forward a little, and her hands were clasping the arms so tightly that it proved to be a matter of some difficulty to unloose her fingers. In front of her was another chair, so close that if anyone had been sitting in it, his knees must have touched those of the dead woman. The seat cushions were flattened down, as if it had been occupied recently by a solid personage. The tea things had not been cleared away, but the kitchen was perfectly clean and tidy. There was no suspicion of foul play, as all the doors and windows were securely fastened on the inside. Winter added that her face made him feel quite sickish-like, and the house smelt very bad for all that it was so clean. A post-mortem examination of the body showed that her heart was in a very bad state and enabled the coroner's jury to return a verdict of death from natural causes, but the doctor told me privately that she must have had a shock of some kind. In fact, he said, if anyone ever died of fright, she did, but goodness knows what can have frightened her in her own kitchen unless it was her own conscience, but that's more in your line than mine. He added that he had found the examination of the body peculiarly trying though he could not, or would not, say why. As I was the last person who had seen her alive, I attended the inquest, but gave only formal evidence of an unimportant character. I didn't mention that the second armchair had stood in the corner of the room during my visit, and that I had not occupied it. The boy was of course called and asked how he knew she was dead, but nothing satisfactory could be got from him. He said that there was right houses and there was wrong houses, not to say persons, and that they had been after her for a long time. When asked whom he meant by they, he declined to explain, merely adding as a general statement that he could see further into a milestone than what some people could, for all they thought themselves so clever. His own family deposed that he had been absolutely silent, contrary to his usual custom from tea-time on New Year's Eve to breakfast-time next day. Then he had suddenly announced that Mrs. Vries was dead, and ran out of the house before they could say anything to him. Accordingly, he was dismissed with a warning to the effect that persons who were disrespectful to the constituted authorities always came to a bad end. It naturally fell to me to conduct a funeral, as I could have given no reason for refusing her Christian burial. The coffin was not particularly weighty, but as it was being lowered into the grave, the ropes supporting it parted, and it fell several feet with a thud. The shock dislodged a quantity of soil from the sides of the cavity, so that the coffin was completely covered before I had time to say, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Afterwards, the sexton spoke to me apologetically about the occurrence. I'm fair put about, sir, about them ropes, he said. Nothing of that sort ever happened before in my time. They was pretty nigh new, too, and I thought they'd have done us for years. But just look here, sir. Here he showed to extraordinarily ravelled ends. I never seen a rope part like that afore. Almost looks as if it had been scratted through by a big cat or something. That night, I was taken ill. When I was better, my doctor said that rest and change of scene were imperative. I knew that I could never go down a drove alone by night again, so tended my resignation to my bishop. I hope that I have still a few years of usefulness before me, but I know that I can never be as if I had not seen what I have seen. Whether I met with my adventure through any fault of my own, I cannot tell, but of one thing I am sure, there are powers of darkness which walk abroad in waste places, and that man is happy who has never had to face them. 
If anyone who reads this should ever have a similar experience and should feel tempted to try to investigate it further, I commend to him the counsel of Jesus ben Syrah. My son, seek not things that are too hard for thee, and search not out things that are above thy strength. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? That was between sunset and moonrise by Richard Henry Molden. Um, I'm rushing to do this because I'm starting with a cold, and I know that quite soon my voice is going to be ruined. Anyway, but then by the time the next time comes to put one up, because I always like to have two in hand, that uh, my voice should be okay again. Anyway, about this, about the story and about Richard Henry Molden. Richard Henry Molden was born in 1879 in England and died in August 1951. He was brought up in East Anglia, which, in case you don't know, is the bumpy bit on the east side of England, above the Thames estuary and below the Wash. And it is famous for being flat and for it was the home of the Fens and this area called the Fens. And for most of recorded history, it was a very flat and flooded area and so rather remote. And you would think, given that it's not too far from London, realistically, um, it would be more connected. But it was a very remote place. And so it's a good setting for all stories of the supernatural, where strange things can go on in the mists on the land that is flooded and difficult to get around. Mm. Malden had lots in common with M.R. James, and he was a big pal of M.R. James, I think politically, religiously, and in background they were very similar. Malden was the son of a clergyman and spent his career as a clergyman and moved all over, but mainly uh, after, there was a brief period in Salford near Manchester, but he spent a lot of his career in Yorkshire, married a Yorkshire woman of, um, who was a daughter of a clergyman and ended up down in Wells in Somerset, a delightful little place, and he was president of the Somerset Archaeological Society. I did an edition of a book by uh, Frederick Bly Bond, which was a story of the archaeological dig at Glastonbury Abbey, which belongs to Wells and was done by the Archaeological Society. Well, Bly Bond contacted the ghost to let him in and then got sacked because it wasn't exactly Christian, it was thought. Anyway, but this was before... Malden ended up there. It was about 20 years before that. In any case, as well as being a very active churchman, Malden wrote a lot. He, may, he wrote quite a lot of books, but mostly about uh, Christian themes, about church history and theology and things. His only book of fiction was Nine Ghosts, published in 1943, written, I think, or finished in 1942. And he says that he was a, this was a tribute to M.R. James, his pal who had passed away. In 1936, in fact, it, it turns out that Malden was one of those select few people who was invited on Christmas Eve to hear M.R. James read out his ghost stories at um, King's College. Perhaps because of his connection, perhaps because in the preface to his book, he says it was um, a tribute to M.R. James. He's compared with M.R. James. He's probably not as good a writer. He's not bad, though, and I think people have been unfairly critical of him. One thing that I notice is when you read James's stories, mostly the monsters are decidedly odd. And you do get that here, this thing that appears down the drove 
is fairly weird. But um, there's, a, there's a Christian tinge to it, I think. And Molden's Monsters and Ghosts are, he casts them in, you know, the, the old way of there's uh, Christianity and then there's the devil and all these minions, whereas M.R. James's monsters tend to be just kind of bizarre and not necessarily satanic. Mm. So, I'm not sure what poor old Mrs. Vries is doing, why they go together, because she's a stranger in that place. But there's a lot of folk horror stuff about it as well. Here we have these remote places that he has to walk. He can't, the roads are terrible. He has to walk across empty, deserted places, and there's kind of the idiot boy who sees things that others can't. And I say in the show notes that they use the same motif in Midsummer, which is a 2019 film. They have um, kind of the guy, the, the boy with congenital defects who was prophesying for them. So this idea that people who were what they called simple had a special access to the spiritual world. And this boy says that they, whoever they are, have been after old Mrs. Reese for a long time. We don't know why she went there, what she was doing there. So that in itself is an unsolved mystery, but they get her in the end. They're always reminded by the thing that appears to him. We have lots of stories around here of things that appear down lonely lanes uh, that are oddly shaped, huge, can shapeshift, and we call them boggles, uh, which is a word we share with the Scots, I think. Well, I know, in fact. There we are. So, all good stuff. Not as long a story as some of the previous ones. Call to action. I've, I've put this bit in, you know. So the, call to, the previous call to action worked tremendously well, which was uh, to say, can you share the podcast with somebody who might like it? And we've been growing, and that's great, except we're now getting uh, 12,000 downloads plus a month, which pushes me into the next podcasting hosting pay bracket. So this call to action is, it isn't stop sharing it, keep sharing it, but that's two call to actions, so just ignore that one. If, uh, because of the extra cost, if any of you felt that you wanted to support the show by becoming a Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, but it's patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D, which is uh, Welsh for red kite, as I may have said before, because once many years ago, when I was working for the RSPB in Wales, I was, uh, I was project manager of the red kite project, Barkid Koch. There we are. Okay, another little interesting snippet. So that's that, really. You can, buy, you can buy me a coffee through the various coffee things as well if you don't want to commit to a longer-term thing. The music, the intro music and the middle music is by the Hartwood Institute. It's, what, it's the start of their um, song, tune, called Some Come Back, which is very spooky, from their album Witch Phase 4. They've done a load of other stuff, obviously, since then. And um, the end music is by a guy who I don't know called Mew, and it's called Bad Encounter, but again, it's very spooky. So that's me for this week, signing off without too much rambling. Not sure what, we've come back to England, did you notice, after our jaunt around um, that continent. We may even go to America, although there's an Irish story by uh, Sheridan Lafanu I want to do as well. So who knows, um, once I recover from my man flu. Okay, take care.